like in the city, I like going from um, from here or from further upstream. Uh, you are with the with the stream, which is great, so you don't really have to paddle if you're not in a big hurry. That's Dr. Mary Jane McCallum, assistant professor in the history department at the University of Winnipeg, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous People, History and Archives, and a member of the Muncie, Delaware Nation. In the summer months, McCallum enjoys canoeing, either on a lake in the White Shell or down the Red River here in Winnipeg. It's a fast river, and it helps if you're going to go in one place and come out another place. <laughs> like, if you have two cars, like, one to pick up the... Yeah. So it's just a really cool way of seeing that part of the, the city and then north of the city. Um, it looks completely different from, the, from a canoe, so it's, it's kind of cool. After classes resume in the fall, McCallum will be back at the University of Winnipeg, or more likely working from home, continuing her research even as public health restrictions due to COVID-19 create challenges for researchers trying to gain access to archival material. McCallum studies archival records, material evidence, and oral histories in order to understand the historical experiences of Indigenous peoples. Throughout her academic career, McCallum has focused heavily on research related to 20th century histories of health. While Canada's medical system is often praised for providing universal health care, McCallum argues what is left out of the discourse is how its services have affected Indigenous communities. Through her research, McCallum is addressing the systemic racism that has long been part of Canada's healthcare system. We can, we can apply our knowledge of the history of the places that we live to understand how those structures become part of our, our hospitals and then how that kind of functions and then grows and then how we, you know, we still live with it today. On this episode, the research question is, how does history help us to think about structural racism? From the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center, you're listening to Research Question, amplifying the impact of discovery from the researchers of the University of Winnipeg. The recent incident involving Joyce Eshaquan and a Teamekwood woman who recorded a nurse's racist comments as she lay dying in a Quebec hospital bed is just one of the latest in a long line of incidents highlighting the failure of the Canadian healthcare system to protect Indigenous lives. The incident has drawn comparisons to the death of Brian Sinclair, whose story was told in Structures of Indifference, A Life and Death in a Canadian City, a work authored by McCallum and Dr. Adele Perry. Sinclair a middle-aged, non-status Anishinaabeg resident of Winnipeg, died from an easily treatable infection in a Winnipeg emergency room after being untreated and unattended to for a period of 34 hours. McCallum maintains that both Eshaquan and Sinclair's deaths reflect a particular pattern of racism and indifference born out of colonial structures. As with Sinclair's case, there will be an inquiry into Eshaquan's death, but McCallum cautions that some inquiries can be limited in their impact and often shift blame to the patient instead of the failure to deliver care. Structures of Indifference outlines that the inquiry into Sinclair's death and subsequent 2014 report omitted any consideration of underlying factors, including racism and systemic discrimination. What I've learned about um, structural racism in healthcare, especially with that study on uh, Brian Sinclair, um, is that we can think through this historically to help us to understand 
the answers to these questions when the official answer is not satisfactory. For McCallum, it is the absence of historical reflection about the impacts of colonialism and lack of Indigenous history in general that initially prompted her to think critically about different forms of structuralized racism. It's funny when you think about when you come to consciousness about this stuff, right? And I think for me, it wasn't really until I went to university when I started to think about these things. And really, I became a part of the McMaster First Nations Student Association and and started to think critically about what I was learning in my undergraduate degree Um, how Indigenous history had really no place in the history department there. It's a different kind of place. Uh, Southwestern Ontario has a very different history, has a very different history of the presence of Indigenous people. McCallum, a member of the Muncie, Delaware Nation, grew up just north of Barrie, Ontario. I am a band member of the Muncie, Delaware Nation. It's one of two Delaware First Nations in Canada. Both are located along the Thames River in southwestern Ontario. It's a small First Nation of about 150 people. That's been the um, population since my band settled there in about the 1790s. So they were um, refugees from the United States looking for a sort of safe place to live after having, you know, survived multiple sessions of, of violent dispossession. Originally, the Muncies lived in the area of eastern North America around New York State and uh, over, you know, hundreds of years had been dispossessed a number of times and moved westward. And uh, other people like me who, you know, end up in places like Winnipeg. <laughs> One of the ways that I kind of think about this past is to remember my mom having kind of interjected in one of my teacher's lessons, which was to teach us uh, some weird song about how I'm glad I'm not an Eskimo kind of thing, right? Which was like, oh, they eat real, you know, raw meat or they, you know, <laughs> they dance around and live in ice and that kind of thing. And she sort of said, you know, you have students in your class who come from um, indigenous background and this was unacceptable. And it sort of made her unpopular and increased her kind of visibility in our community probably as well. So so that was kind of our upbringing, at least until high school. I had a few uh, native friends in high school. Barrie was a very white place uh, when, when uh, my brother and I grew up there. After high school, McCallum attended McMaster University, where she joined the First Nations Student Association. This was the central and only real push to formal uh, spheres of the university. And the, you know, MAC is, is really big. And so the kind of impact of that voice tended to be outside of the student lounge, pretty small. Compared to uh, my experience of working at the University of Winnipeg um, now in the you know 2000s, where you have a pretty solid and consistent history of Indigenous participation on campus that has actually had an impact on the way that things work on campus. It is important to note that McCallum's academic career could have been a lot different, as she was deeply interested in researching a different historical period altogether. I was very interested in medieval history when I was doing my undergraduate degree, and still am. I had actually applied to go to school in uh, Montreal for medieval history, and I took a year off and went to Europe and uh, 
I kind of got sick of the wealth of the church over there. The you know kept thinking about how that wealth was derived from imperialism and from you know our ancestors, <laughs> and uh, it was like I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. I read uh, an essay by John Malloy in my fourth year about Indian policy, and I think that that was kind of the hook into Indian policy for me. So I had experienced uh, going through uh, the process of applying for Indian status after 1985, which had been lost in my family since my grandmother had married a non-Indian. And in spite of our, you know, strong connection to the community and, and certainly her connection throughout her life, this was something that, you know, didn't really play into my identity very much. I knew who I was but certainly my access to the community for sure. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it was something that I was like, you know, this, this stuff about the British imperial government and the Canadian government kind of taking this on, this is, this is real and it really has this um, reality in, in my life and in the way that I uh, relate to my community. So, yeah, so I just, uh, I think, probably emailed them and said, tell me about Trent. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to study. I knew I wanted to study Indigenous colonial relations and over time kind of came up with a topic and and it was, uh, you know, reading for that topic, which had to do with Indigenous uh, women's history, that I came across Adele Perry's um, article, Fair Ones of a Pure Caste, which was about, you know, female immigration in BC and and I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's super smart, right? And I just wanted to talk about it and think about it all the time. And then um, I think John introduced us on online or something, or I emailed her or something, and came out here to Winnipeg in February. <laughs> the, uh, the, funny, the funny thing in academia is that the assumption is that you move eastward uh, for your graduate degrees, right? You go to Toronto or you go to, the, to Ontario for the, those. And I was doing the opposite of what the trend was at the time. Um, but I have not regretted it. I mean, this was this was by far and may still be the best place to study Indigenous history in Canada. It wasn't until later in her academic career in Winnipeg that McCallum found an interest in medical history, discovering the relatively unknown history of Indigenous nurses. I was very interested in the history of medicine and uh, in particular in the colonization of medicine here in North America. And I was reading a lot of that literature my first and um, second year of my PhD, and I was really getting frustrated with the lack of engagement of Indigenous people as providers of healthcare and medicine. So there was this kind of history at the time whereby traders and missionaries brought this knowledge to people and kind of rescued them and, you know, improved the life and the health of Indigenous people. And I, and I think that that's that idea probably still is out there. <laughs> and, you know, we confront it all the time. But uh, I started getting interested in the, the history of Indigenous nurses. And uh, so I started writing about that and then, you know, realized that there was this larger history of women's work that somehow had managed to be completely erased from the territory of women's labor history, labor history in general, and also indigenous history. The more I kind of looked, the more I found, right? Uh, you know, 
go to the archives and look up things about indigenous women and work and you'd find all kinds of things on it on domestics i found information about the federal relocation program that sought to remove people from first nations reserves to urban areas for permanent kind of uh, relocation and uh, placement in permanent positions so I, i just kind of got very very interested in this you know, the nurses and the CHRs in particular in the health field, but also in that era of the 19, say, late 20s, 30s to the 80s. And this this interesting succession of very hardworking women, right, who were engaging with a system that by and large, they, they didn't create, right? But they were trying to improve for their communities. Indigenous nurses were virtually non-existent in Canada's healthcare system until after World War II when the war caused a shortage and the federal government reluctantly changed their stance, allowing Indigenous women to join the nursing profession. After the Second World War, they did a whole bunch of um, nurses' aids programs. Native women were encouraged to go into those programs because they're short, they're cheap, the federal government didn't want to like spend a whole lot of money on post-secondary education, especially for women. So there, there is a rise in the number sort of in the 50s and 60s. This led to the formation of a professional organization representing Indigenous nurses across the country. The Registered Nurses of Canadian Indian Ancestry, once formed, pushed for more Indigenous representation in the Canadian healthcare field. When they formed, that was one of the first things they did, take stock of the nursing staff in the federal system and to say, oh, wow, we have this massive underrepresentation of Indigenous nurses. What are we going to do to address that? Because we want to have representation among those who have, you know, power and authority in our communities. I have to think back when I was reading about that as a historian, right? An indigenous person who's in a history department is like, it feels like you're the only one, right? I know I'm not, I know I'm not the first or anything like that, but but it, it, it was like an inspiration to learn about this professional organization that formed in the 70s, right? And, and what might Indigenous history look like if we had had those same numbers and that same representation and that same leadership in the 70s? It's a, it's a completely different field of work, but it's still an interesting question, right? Despite gains towards more Indigenous representation in the Canadian healthcare system, there is still a chronic shortage across the country to this day. According to a 2016 Stat Canada census, of the 90,000 plus specialists and general practitioners in Canada, less than 1% identify as Indigenous. The underrepresentation of Indigenous healthcare providers is just one of the many issues concerning First Nations' relationship to Canada's healthcare system. The lack of clear government accountability between the provinces and the federal government over who is responsible for providing healthcare services for Indigenous peoples has always been a point of contention to the detriment of the collective health of Indigenous persons in Canada. The Canada Health Act outlines the responsibilities of the provinces and territories for delivering health services. The health of Canadians is a provincial and territorial responsibility, while health support for Indigenous people is seen as a federal government's responsibility as outlined in the Indian Act. This is a part of a general approach to to treaty rights and to federal responsibilities that Department of Indian Affairs has been working on since the 19th century. This larger effort to shrink the population of status Indians and to uh, reduce its responsibility 
through offloading of services to the province. And so this has been interpreted by many First Nations people as an effort to kind of shirk treaty rights, treaty responsibilities on the part of the federal government, but also as an effort to kind of assimilate or integrate First Nations people into the broader Canadian population. Uh, which would completely undermine, um, you know, status and rights as Indigenous people, right? The federal government has never recognized a treaty right to health care. It rather says that it has a moral obligation to help First Nations people attain the status of health of other Canadian citizens. And until that moment, they will play a role, and that role will be ever decreasing, right? In the 60s and 70s, that got turned into, we're going to help people who are poor, right? We're going to help people who are not working full-time. So we will provide that benefit to those people, just as we would to anybody else who's unemployed. And now we still we still live with this assumption that, yeah, that, that federal Indian rights are, are really for those who are impoverished only, right? Scholars like McCallum and Maureen Lux, through her work, Separate Beds, maintain that Canada's health care system advanced policies of assimilation while neglecting treaty rights and disparaging Indigenous systems of healing. At a time when Canada was consciously defining and investing in the national health, culminating in what would become Medicare, racially segregated hospitals were being instituted across the country. Recently, some of these institutions have been the focus of McCallum's research. The Indigenous History of Tuberculosis in Manitoba 1930-1970 project seeks to uncover, explain, and preserve the experiences of Indigenous persons who are treated in tuberculosis sanatoriums in Manitoba. First Nations experience in federally funded hospitals and community hospitals has been, um, you know, terrible, right? They, they're treated like they don't belong. So we are looking specifically at this, the Indian hospitals and at Ninet and their history in Manitoba from 1940 to 19, mid-1960s. That process by which the Sanatorium Board of Manitoba basically made decisions over uh, the treatment of um, healthcare for First Nations and Métis and also Inuit into the 1950s and, and about their uh, removal from their communities to this new community, the hospital, right? And then uh, also decisions about their return to their community, about where they might be buried if they lost their life while they were in those that institution, their lack of communication with the um, home communities uh, that has led to a real disconnection for many of those uh, patients, now adults, but they would have been children at the time. And there's this kind of legacy of sort of stigma related to that um, experience, probably because of the disconnection of being uh, removed and then maybe a loss of control over um, over decision making. And like we've found in many instances now that there are, you know, community members who know the uh, the adults who were in these institutions, but had no knowledge that they had been where they had been when they left and and that they had experienced uh, this uh, even even family members so so people had just you know not talked about it or or whatever so we're you know we're seeing many of the the same kinds of things that we saw in, in residential schools happening and um, to those who were removed to Indian hospitals unlike federal Indian hospitals the TB sanatoriums in Manitoba 
had a different structure. Run by a volunteer board of doctors and public health professionals, the Sanatorium Board of Manitoba received money from the federal government to build and run institutions for the treatment of tuberculosis from the early 1900s until the 1960s. So instead of the federal government directly um, running its own hospital, Indian hospitals, uh, for TB, the Sandboard did. And so they had this special Indian rehabilitation program whereby patients who uh, were recovering or who had recovered from TB were encouraged to engage in this quote-unquote stepping stone to modern society. So once they, once they recovered, they would go into a kind of employment, training, or um, education upgrading, and then an employment placement officer would find them work in um, an urban area. And then the assumption was that they would move to the city, gain uh, this full employment, and then like just relocate themselves to the city. But there's a bunch of different assumptions that, you know, TB patients were kind of weak and that they, they couldn't return to reserves because the it would be too rigorous on, you know, for their health or they may relapse to TB. But that's kind of one branch of the explanation. The larger one is that that these sands were an important opportunity for uh, integration, right, of, of First Nations people into Canadian society. The Indian Act has a special regulations for Indian health that, um, that complements and then augments public health regulations. So it, it enables the Indian agent to kind of ensure that um, people go to hospitals and um, that they stay there. So the, they have the RCMP to, to kind of ensure that anybody who, who runs away is taken back. Yeah, until the doctors say so. So they were uh, accelerating this larger drive for integration in the post-war era in Canada. What is Indian rehabilitation? Like it was, they're all racialized. They eh? like Indian hospitals, Indian rehabilitation, Indian surveys, Indian TB surveys. So it's all, it's all considered like Indian, like what does that mean, right? And and I started thinking about how our ideas about race played a role in the kind of specific healthcare experience of First Nations people in Manitoba and, and how it really infiltrates everything, right? It, reading the records of the Sanatorium Board of Manitoba uh, has really made very clear the conscious bias, not unconscious bias, in the healthcare system. Like this is, we, we like to say now, and, and there are indigenous scholars out there who say that there is unconscious bias in our healthcare system, but um, I think that people are less willing to talk about the conscious bias. This is the, I know I think about Indians this way. I know I think Indians deserve to be treated this way. And that's clear as day in reading these records. Supporting the archival research, are the oral histories of TB patients who McCallum interviewed for the project. So we were interested in talking to people who wanted to talk to us. We were looking specifically for people who had information about the experience of being a patient or an employee in those institutions. What I wanted to do was I wanted to actually read those two types of narratives together. So uh, somebody recalling um, an experience in a hospital when they were six or seven years old, when they are now like 60 or 70 years old, that's going to be a different kind of record entirely, right? Then at the time 
procedural uh, medical records of doctors um, or rules and regulations about the running of an Indian hospital kind of thing. So they're very different types of records about the past, but I really wanted to be able to read them together. And especially important for understanding the place of those people in their own communities, I think, too. McCall maintains that government records, documentary evidence, and oral histories all contribute greatly to having a clearer understanding of the historical experiences of Indigenous persons in Canada. You know, in, in those debates, what's more important, you know, the voice of Indigenous people or the, or the policy of the government? Like, I think that it's really important to keep your eye on what the government is doing. I want to not lose sight of that when I'm doing this project because... For a person who has survived a disease like tuberculosis, like it's frightening, right? And you often are left with a kind of um, feeling of gratitude towards the government for ha for having um, provided institutions and doctors and medicine. And, and that becomes a kind of narrative of your life and of your um, survival. And that's really important, right, to have. And we have a lot of, um, of people who see the history of the sandboard that way. But there, there is also evidence of Indigenous people that was created at the time, um, letters by patients who were um, Inuit, who were um, in Manitoba hospitals and other hospitals in Canada, talking about the oppression of those institutions, talking about the loneliness, talking about the depression and, and real disconnect from their families and communities. And I want to keep that in mind too, right? Like these two stories, you can tell this history so many ways, right? But... I do want to keep that, that history of colonization as part of it. While some of her work has been delayed due to archival closures caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, McCallum has kept busy by reviewing records and data available online. McCallum is now focusing on the next phase of the project, the assessment and digitization of photos from the Manitoba Sanatorium Board Archives. We had applied earlier this year for a, a grant to continue the Manitoba Indigenous TB Photos Project, which was a project that was initially, you know, or initiated, I guess, in a basement of the Sand Board of Manitoba, which is now the Manitoba Lung Association, who, who had boxes of photos. Some people had seen them, but no Indigenous person had seen them, and, and certainly none of the communities that weren't most um, invested in those histories um, had seen them. And so we had worked with the Manitoba Lung Association as well as the archives to try and make those photos available in showing those photos, in making copies of them for communities, and also in just continuing the general work of the TB project, which has so many angles now, but right now we're devoting more attention like to deaths and burials, which is to help people try and locate ancestors who were in the institutions and died there and never returned. For many Canadians, Medicare has become a defining icon of our national identity. But the narrative of a benevolent, universal health care system often lacks a First Nations perspective. This is something that McCallum hopes to provide with her most recent article, co-authored with Dr. Maureen Lux, Medicare versus Medicine Chest, Core Challenges and Treaty Rights to Healthcare. Maureen Lux says that, you know, there's two questions in, in Canadian health history. One is the questions of this rise of the universal health care system and how wonderful that is. And the other question is this massive gap in the health standards between, you know, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. And they never get connected. So this was work that 
kind of came in part out of her book on separate beds on the Indian hospital system in Canada, um, asking these questions about like what role does the treaty right to healthcare have in the rise of the universal healthcare system? And, and the answer is zero, right? In fact, it's a kind of erasure of treaty rights. And, uh, and then we kind of went in and had a closer look at that era, the late 60s and 70s, and the resistance on the part of First Nations people to the declining expression of the treaty right to healthcare, which is the non-insured health benefits program. This is an insurance company that contracts with the federal government to provide First Nations people, not with rights, but with benefits, right? So it was really great to work with her on that. McCallum's research continues to demonstrate how history can help us uncover forms of structuralized racism. By using a variety of historical sources to challenge narratives concerning Canadian institutions, we can begin to recognize how entrenched colonialism is within Canada's national identity and how the impacts of colonialism continue to affect Indigenous persons. And while McCallum thinks education is a good first step towards meaningful reconciliation, she is adamant that strong action is also needed. We, we believe that education has this ability to, to change people's minds, to change the way that people think, and to eventually, you know, radically improve the conditions of life for Indigenous people and people of colour. Like, we've invested kind of in that. One of the problems with uh, education is that it takes a long time for that payoff to happen, right? As much as I am committed to um, education, I am also committed to like radical redistribution of wealth, like now. So that goal of education, I think, always has to come with a knowledge that power and money is not equally distributed in our society, and that is what's contributing to ill health and, and racism in our hospitals. You've been listening to Research Question. Research Question is produced by the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. The University of Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, the heartland of the Métis people. Written and produced by Kent Davies. Interview with Dr. Mary Jane McCallum. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. For more information on the Indigenous History of Tuberculosis in Manitoba 1930-1970 project, go to indigenoustbhistories.wordpress.com. For more on University of Winnipeg research, go to uwinnipeg.ca slash research. For more info on the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center and the work that we do, go to oralhistorycenter.ca. Thanks for listening.